Um, Habakkuk is in the Old Testament, but you don't need to have your Bible. If you want to read along in the passage, it's found in your bulletin. It's going to be on the screen as well. We are in the fourth week of a five-week series on Habakkuk. Next week is our last. Habakkuk feels as if the world is falling apart because he's been hearing some really bad news, which I'll share in just a minute. And he doesn't know what to do. He feels as if the world is being turned upside down. The nation that he's in is being turned upside down. He feels overwhelmed. And so today we see him returning to what he knows to be true in light of what he doesn't know. Sounds familiar? That's what we're doing today as well. No matter who you are, no matter how you voted, no matter what you're feeling about this election, we are returning today to what we know to be true, perhaps feeling as if you don't know what to do or whether it was a good thing for you or a bad thing. Today we're returning to what we know to be true this morning. And so I want to read from Habakkuk 3, parts of chapter 3, and then we're going to skip down to verse 16. We're going to start in verse 2, where we read this. O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Taman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light rays flashed from his hand and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth and looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Kashan in affliction, the curtains in the lands of Midian, did tremble. Skipping to verse 16. I hear, and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. This is the word of the Lord. On Tuesday evening, um, was kind of preparing to sit down and watch the election returns, and they were just beginning to trickle in, so I went out in the backyard to do some work in the backyard, and I heard kids uh, playing in our neighbor's yard, and so they're good friends of ours, so I peered up over the wall to see if the parents were there, and I saw one of the neighbors, and we started talking, and of course we started talking about the election, and she had voted for Hillary uh, Hillary Clinton and was hopeful uh, for Hillary Clinton, and we were talking and having this conversation, and she said, I said, well, you know, how are you feeling? And she said, I'm fearful. And I said, well, if you voted for Hillary, you have nothing to fear because there is no way Donald Trump is going to be elected. And she goes, I, I just don't know if that's true. And I said, it is. I know this to be a fact. Like, I know stuff. I have a political science degree from Purdue University, like a BA in political science. I know this stuff, man. Like, you've got nothing to worry about. And I, you know, I just said, it's clear, it's obvious. And throughout this whole election, like, I've been in very heated dialogues and conversations with friends that are, you know, on different sides of this thing. It's gotten very heated, and at times I've had to say, let's stop arguing, because the truth is, it doesn't matter. There's no way Donald Trump will win this election, right? So why are we even arguing? Because I know stuff. <laughs> now, <laughs> Let's get back to Habakkuk. Habakkuk was a prophet. 
And yet, this is not a prophecy, Habakkuk. Instead, it's a conversation that's going on between the prophet and God himself. So a, prophet, a, a, pro, a book of prophecy would be, a, this is, thus saith the Lord to God's people, right? This is God's word to you. But instead, in Habakkuk, what we have is, we're peering into a conversation that is taking place between the prophet himself and God regarding things that are coming in the future. So in that sense, it's, it is like a prophecy, but it's not a thus saith the Lord to God's people. Instead, it's a thus saith the Lord to a man, to Habakkuk, in the conversation that's going on. Let me give you some background. Habakkuk first comes to Yahweh in complaint in this book. And he complains that there's too much violence and injustice and evil going on among his own people. And so he cries out for God to do something about it. He's saying, why aren't you holding the people of Israel accountable? Your priests in the, in the temple, they're corrupt. They don't love you. They don't love the law. They're not being faithful to you. Do something. The king of Judah, and at this time, Israel is divided into two nations. There had been a civil war, north and south, interestingly. He's in the south, among Judah, the, the, the southern tribe. And it had been primarily more faithful than the north. It had now been taken into exile. In the south, they had been more faithful, but now they had fallen into the north's issues of idolatry. And the same problems that existed in the north are now in the south. They're filled with idolatry. They're not honoring God's law. They're not worshiping God. And he says, what is wrong with you, Lord? Why don't you do something about this? And God says, oh, I'm listening, and I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to send the Babylonians, your feared and hated enemy, and they're going to come, and they're going to destroy Judah. First complaint leads to the second complaint. Wait a minute. You can't do that. There's no way you can do that. They're way worse than we are. How can you bring our injustice? Their injustice is even greater than our injustice, but God says, no, it's going to happen. And then last week, Pastor Gray preached from the five woes that God brings, and those five woes are the five woes for Bab Babylon, and that God will ultimately judge Babylon in their injustice. And there's this cycle Pastor Gray talked about in nations between the rising up and the bringing down, and God is the king over it all. And this is where we find Habakkuk today. Two complaints, five woes, and Habakkuk is now being moved. He's been on this journey, and we've been watching him through this journey. We've seen him move from a state of anger to a state of outrage beyond even anger, then to silence and waiting. And then now, today, what we're seeing him is moving finally into a heart of prayer and song and worship. And really, this is where I'm hoping we can, as a community and as a body of Christ in America, get to today even. As we, if we waited and we've listened and what's going to happen, and now what's, what are we as the people of God going to do? We see him go on this long journey and it takes time, but then he gets to a place where he's able to pray and rejoice and sing and remember who his God is. Habakkuk returns to what he knows to be true in the face of what he doesn't know. So, looking at Habakkuk this morning, when you don't know what to do, remember what God has done. That's what Habakkuk says. When you don't know what to do, when you're confused, confounded, scratching your head, return to what you know to be true, and this is what we see Habakkuk doing. He remembers God's character, he remembers God's power, and he remembers God's promise. We're going to look at those three things this morning. First of all, he remembers God's character, and he says in verse 2 of this passage, O Lord, I've heard the report of you, and your work, 
O Lord, do I fear in awe, worship, wonder. I, in the midst of the years, revive that, that work that I've heard about. In the midst of the years, make it known, and in your wrath, which you've said is coming, would you please remember mercy? In your wrath, remember mercy. In the NIV, that's the New International Version of the, of the Bible, it says this. Lord, I've heard, in that same verse, verse two, I've heard of your fame, I've heard from my people, I've grown up hearing this story about how you saved our people from Egypt, and you worked in your power, and you brought your people out of slavery, and he says this, I remember your fame, O Lord, do, and, 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 I, and I live in awe of your deeds. Would you please renew that in our day? I've heard these stories of your triumph and, and, and you working among our people and saving our people. Would you please do that again and then again, he says, but in your wrath, would you please remember that you're merciful? He goes back to God's character and he's reminding himself of God's character and in a way, humbly, he's, he's praying to the Lord and asking the Lord to also remember that he's not only a holy God, but that he is a merciful God who loves uh, mercy and grace. Now, God is holy and all-powerful, and you need to know that. That's why his judgment is coming towards his people. We don't like this conversation of judgment in our society, much less did he like it either, right? We're not comfortable with this idea of God's judgment or anger towards sin. We hate that. We love the idea of God's love and justice, or excuse me, love and mercy and grace, but justice and anger and wrath, he didn't like it. We don't like it. But here's the reality. What I found is this. Until I began to study God's holiness in the, throughout the Bible, not just the Old Testament, but the New Testament and the Old Testament, that was a pivotal turning point for me as a follower of Jesus to understand how holy God is. And his mercy and his grace shine like a diamond after you understand the depths of his holiness and his righteousness. And for a minute, I would just want to talk about God's character because this is what the prophet is doing. He's returning to the character of God. In Exodus chapter 33, that's the second book of the Bible, right? We see Moses being bold enough to ask God to see his glory. God has revealed himself to Moses over and over and over, and they've had this ongoing conversation throughout Moses' ministry, and at one point, he is bold enough to say, would you show me your glory? It says in verse 18 of chapter 33, please show me your glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, which is the essence of his character. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And so what I love about this passage is it demonstrates two things simultaneously. On the one hand, we see the holiness and the righteousness of God. I love you, Moses, but I can't give you what you're asking. You want to see me face to face, and that will come later through the person and work of Jesus Christ. But right now, you want to see me face to face, and he said, you can't. Your, your face and your body would literally melt like wax if I revealed my full glory to you. But instead, in this passage, what you see is such a beautiful example of his mercy also. God is holy, but he's also merciful. And God says, what I will do, and you see later on in the passage, 
He says, I will hide you behind a rock with my hand in the shadow of my wings, and then I'm going to pass by and declare my steadfast love, my covenantal love for my people, but I'm going to hide you from my glory so that you don't die. My goodness, my mercy, I will have compassion upon whom I will have compassion. I will show mercy upon whom I will show mercy. And all the while, he is holding his hand so that he is shielding the glory from Moses. Throughout the Old Testament, the phrase, the Lord is merciful. And this was in our, in our assurance of pardon this morning when we confessed our sins. Throughout the Old Testament, you hear this over and over and over. The Lord is merciful slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. That phrase, steadfast love, is his hesed, which is in the Hebrew, it means covenantal love. That God is committed to his covenantal love for his people. He will never give up on his covenantal love for his people. And this is the essence of what Habakkuk is getting at. Oh Lord, please, in your judgment, do not forget your covenantal love for your people, that you are bound to a people to show mercy and grace. I know that you're holy. And I know you're righteous. And you're going to judge us. But please don't forget your mercy. And here's the beautiful thing, if, and we don't have this part of the Habakkuk story, but in essence, the whole Bible is telling the story, and God, through the whole Bible, says to Habakkuk and to us today, oh, I will never forget my mercy <laughs> or my holiness. How could I? And the whole Old Testament is foreshadowing the person and the work of Jesus Christ. The whole Old Testament is pointing as a figure and as and as a, as a sh- foreshadowing of the person and the work of Jesus. And he's saying, I would never forget because I'm going to send my only son out of my steadfast love. Secondly, remember God's power. He remembers God's character. Then he begins to remind himself of God's power and the strength of how he saved the God's people out of the exodus and out of slavery and the bondage of slavery. And I'm not going to get into all the verses, but if you want to go read later in verses 3 through 12 and then 14 through 16, you see all these specific examples, and they're kind of intricate in their detail. You have to flip to a ton of different passages to get the context, but there's all these different ways in which he's pointing and saying, this is how you saved and worked among Joshua's time. This is why you worked among Moses and Exodus and so forth. He remembers God's power. (coughs) Are you? Right now in your heart and all that we're going through as a nation, are you remembering God's character and, and his power? God is good. God is God. And finally, he remembers God's promise in verse 13. Habakkuk 3.13 says this, you went out for the salvation of your people in the Exodus. For the salvation of your anointed, and that word anointed means God's people, but ultimately it means his son, Jesus Christ, the anointed one, the king, the king of kings. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. I don't understand you, Father. I'm confused. I don't know what to think. But I go back to these three things. I remember your character. You're good. Your steadfast love is good. I remember your power. And I remember your promise. That you will never give up on your anointed. 
You'll never give up on your plan to save a people. And the whole Bible is a story, you guys. It's telling a great story of God redeeming a people from the curse, from the fall, from the brokenness, from the sin. And I, I unpacked this whole story the other day, but it's basically this story of which God not only plans to pluck a few people out to save them so that they don't have to spend eternity in hell or away from him. Th that's a, a very truncated version of the gospel. The gospel is that God not only forgives people of their sins, he redeems a people to himself and he is going to restore the entire world back to the way it was meant to be. This is his coming commitment. His kingdom, a people he is redeeming to himself. And throughout this series, as we've looked at it, there's been this phrase that I've kept repeating and it's very, very simple. And it's basically this, and I see I see Habakkuk returning to these themes throughout. And it's that God is God. He's all-powerful. He's holy. He's righteous. And God is good. And it's so simple, but it's not shallow. God is God. He's sovereign. He's powerful. And in the midst of this horrible news of the coming judgment, he returns to that. My God is God, and he's powerful. I've got to live under the reality that he's got this state of my life, but the people's life and this nation. And I've got to remember that he's good. He's altogether holy and righteous and loving and merciful. One of my friends posted on Facebook, right literally the next morning after the election, and she, she like basically summed up our whole Habakkuk series, and I was so proud of her. She like took this great exposition and just said like, hey, I just want to share with you all some good news. Like, I know some of you are bummed, some of you are happy, but regardless, I want to remind you that God is God. He's all-powerful, and he's got this, and God is good. He's holy. And, then, and then she not only stopped there, she, she said, she took three layers of people. Some of you are never Trump people. And, and I want to preach the good news to you about this, and this is what the gospel says to you, and now I want you to know you have to go love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. And then she said to you, never Hillary people, same thing. Like, here's how the gospel speaks to you, and here's what you need to hear. You need to go love your neighbors yourself. And you people that are never Hillary and never Trump and everything in between. And like, hey, here's the gospel for you, and here's how you have to go and apply this and love your neighbors yourself, because that is the call. And you see what happens when you place stuff on social media? I mean, like, uh, I just got to get away. I keep being sucked back in like a moth to a flame. But like, as soon as you post anything anymore there's what what happens you know boom you know <laughs> and most people were really encouraged by what she was saying but a couple of people shouted out and one person was like that's so shallow I can't believe you'd post that and it is simple but it is not shallow this idea that God is God he is all-powerful and he's sovereign and he's good is it's simple but friends this is not shallow whatsoever and I want to unpack this a little bit more. I'm going to, thus ends that sermon. I've got a two-for-one deal for you this morning. So moving on to sermon number two. How then should we as God's people live today? And this is complex, right? The state of our nation. And I, I have no idea, you know, how you voted or, or how you're feeling. I, I know this. If I know my people well enough, I think we're all over the board on this. And I think we're all coming in with a variety of emotions and fears and feelings, some feeling hopeful, some feeling very despondent and discouraged and scared, even fearful. 
I think I know you well enough to know there's a variety of emotions this morning. How are we to live in light of this? What are we supposed to be about? What are we supposed to be doing? What are we supposed to be feeling? In a roundabout way, I want to share with us, I think, how we have to move forward as the people of God. And right in the center of Habakkuk is chapter 2, verse 4. And it's the centerpiece of Habakkuk. And I'm going to steal back from that because Gray got to preach from this the other day, and it's too good to pass up. And so I'm going back to Habakkuk 2.4, where Habakkuk says this, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Chapter 2, verse 4. Now, this idea of, behold, his soul is puffed up. It's not upright within him. That is the self-righteous person. That is the Babylonian. That is the person who's living out of his own power, his own economics, his own saying, like, listen, I've got power and prestige, and I'm in control, and I've got all this influence and power. The, the Babylonians, they are filled with pride and are puffed up. But, but Habakkuk says, but the righteous shall live by his faith. The righteous. The righteous will live by his faith. So let me ask you a question. Who are the righteous? Like if I, don't, don't raise your hand, but if I asked you, like, who among you today is righteous? I mean, stand up. If you know you're righteous in the core of your being, you just stand right up here today and you tell us, righteous, right here, you know? I'd be a little scared to do that because a couple of you might do it, but like, you know, I don't, I don't know. Like, who is righteous? And if you know your Bible, this is a complex answer to this question. Who are the righteous? How do you arrive at a conclusion about who the righteous are? Because biblically, this is interesting. On the one hand, uh, Psalm 51, Romans 3, says basically this, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that none are righteous. No, not one. The psalmist says that, and so does Paul. There are none who are righteous. And Jesus echoes the same idea when somebody came up to him and said, hey, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, you know what? Why do you call me good? Because this person coming up to him didn't believe he was God, Jesus, although he was. He came up to him thinking he was just a good teacher. And he goes, why do you call me good? None is good except God. Jesus says this, uh, the psalmists say it, Paul says it everywhere. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. Ephesians 2, we are dead in our trespasses and sins in which we all walked, Paul says. And so there is very much this real sense where the Bible condemns all of us and says, you are broken, you're fallen, and you're sinful, and you're not righteous, none of you. Republicans, you're not righteous. Democrats, you're not righteous. Independents, no. You old people, you're not righteous. Even you millennials, <laughs> you're not righteous. None of you are righteous. We have all fallen short of God's glory. That's what Paul says. And then, throughout the Bible, it says things like this, but the righteous will live by faith. So if no one's righteous, how can there be righteous people? Well, let me tell you how God takes unrighteous people and makes them righteous. And it's beautiful, and it's the, it's the thing that will solve our problems in society if only 
we would live out of this, believe this, trust this, walk in this. In Genesis chapter 12, we have this man named Abraham, and I return to this all the time, but he's the very first Israelite, the very first man to ever walk with God in a covenantal way in this sense, and God comes to him and, and, <coughs> and says, I want you to follow me, and he leaves everything behind, right? He leaves father, mother, uh, his economics, uh, his wealth, everything. He, he packs up his stuff as much as he can, but everything that is secure to him, he leaves behind. And as he goes, it says he believed God, and the Lord credited his faith or belief as what? Righteousness. He credited it to him as righteous. He was not righteous in and of himself, but God said, you know what? You're not righteous, but you're trusting me. You're believing me, and I'm going to take that faith, and I'm going to count it as righteousness. Now, what I find fascinating, this is the first page of the first part of the story of the people of Israel, and we haven't even gotten in the New Testament or Jesus yet, and that, that guy is made right with God. You know, I don't care how you want to define this or use the term. He's saved, born again, made right, made clean, forgiven by faith. Not by what he's done for God, by faith, right? And then Paul echoes that and he's talking to the Jewish Christians in Romans, the, the letter of the Romans, and he says in Romans 4, verses 2 through 3, if Abraham was justified by works, and by the way, the law hadn't even come around yet. That hasn't even come for several hundred late years later. If he's justified by works, he's got something to boast about, but not before God, he says. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted, credited to him as righteousness. Now, I'm begging all of you, young and old alike, Stick with me here on this. This is the essence of the gospel. My own ch children here, stick with me. I, I need everyone in this room to hear me and believe this. Like young or old, I mean it. This is the core of the gospel, what we're gonna talk about right here. You can fall asleep in three minutes, I don't care, but like right now, listen to what I say. And if you don't believe this, that's, that's not okay, but just know this is the essence of, of what the gospel, and the gospel literally means good news, is. How does the unrighteous person get counted as righteous? The Bible calls that the doctrine of justification by faith. And in our group, the, the Presbyterian Church, we, uh, and we're in the Presbyterian Church in America, another day to explain that, but we have this book called the Westminster Confession of Faith. And it tries to sum up what we believe about the Bible. And in question 33 of the shorter catechism, there's an older and a shorter one. I like the shorter one. The shorter one has a question and answer. It says, what is justification? How is somebody made just before a holy God? And the answer is this. Justification is an act of God's free grace wherein he pardons all of our sin. You're going, what does this have to do with Habakkuk and all this election? And trust me, this is, this is the answer to what we're dealing with. And I'll get there in just a minute. Justification is an act of God's free grace and where he pardons all of our sins. This is the gospel. Now listen, this is such good news. Let's use the analogy of debt, financial debt, as the issue. And we all have this enormous debt. Let's call it $200,000 debt between us and God. And, and that's a number, actually, a lot of us can get our mind around because between our mortgage and car payments and all this stuff, many of us have at least $200,000 in debt. So the gospel is God pardons you of that and, and frees you from that debt. 
That's the first half of the gospel. He pardons you of your sin. He cleanses the debt. So imagine God comes in and says, that $200,000 of debt, credit card, mortgage, all of it, it's gone. I wipe it clean. And that's usually where we stop in the gospels. But that's, we're not done yet. You're not only forgiven your sin, the debt is wiped away, $200,000 of debt gone, and now you start clean in your bank account. Instead, it goes more where it's this, justification and act of free God's grace wherein he pardons all your sins and accepts us as righteous. He not only forgives you and say, I forgive you, he now says, I accept you as righteous. And then he says, only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. This is the gospel, you guys. We're forgiven our sins. The debt is canceled, but it's not only that. Let's keep using this banking analogy. God also then fills up, imputes your bank account with the righteousness of Christ. And it's, it's not your righteousness. What, what is it? It's the righteousness of Christ imputed to you, given to you, gifted to you. So you're not only forgiven, you're accepted and welcomed into the kingdom of God as a child of God, Paul says, adopted so that your heart cries out, Abba, Father, you're the sons of God, you're the daughters of God, and I spend every Sunday, if you're new to this church, this is what we talk about. You're a child of God, you're a daughter and son of God because of this, and no matter how much sin has been in your life, no matter broken, fallen, and sinful you are, this is true because of what Jesus did for you. This is the gospel. Now, the righteous will live by faith. But it's by faith that a sinner becomes righteous. Do you see? So the sinner becomes righteous by faith, but then the righteous will live by their faith. And here's the reality. The doctrine of justification is this. The unrighteous, people like you and me, become righteous, are counted righteous because of what Jesus Christ has done for this for us. But then after that, you're filled with the Holy Spirit. And then there is this journey that you walk on. And for the rest of your life, God is actually making you righteous. Not not for salvation, but because of it. You're not becoming more righteous in order to earn salvation. You already have it. But this is called the doctrine of sanctification, where you become more and more and more and more like Jesus if God is actually in your life. If he's not, then we have a bigger problem. When you have faith, you are justified, you're forgiven, and God takes you on this journey of becoming righteous. Now, what does that look like? The righteous will live by their faith. What does it actually mean to be righteous, friends? How did Jesus sum it up? Jesus once said, you know what? He who loves me will keep my commandments. And other people said, well, sum up those commandments for us, will you? And Jesus goes, I will. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. And then people along the way go, but well, who's my neighbor? A lawyer once said that to him. Of course. No offense, lawyers, but like he said, hey, who's my neighbor? I really want to get down to this. And Jesus goes, the person you hate the most, the person you are systematically pushing out to the margins, that person that you're prejudiced against, that person you despise, that person that you literally are, are, are racist towards, because that's exactly what's happening. The Samaritan, he uses the good Samaritan. The Samaritans were hated by the Jews, you guys. 
for their race, for their ethnicity, but also because they're mixed religion. They were, they, had their, they were part Jews, but had this other thing going on. And, and they were despised. And Jesus says, that's your neighbor. You're to love that person as much as you love yourself. That person you can't stand and people like you can't stand. That's your neighbor. Now, that's what it means to be righteous. Love your neighbors yourself. But the problem, though, is here's what happens in elections and politics and just being a good old human being. We are called to love our neighbors ourselves, but in our hearts, in the systems that we create in politics and so forth, and what happens is, because of self-righteousness, we create whole categories of people that we consider deplorable, to use another word out of our wonderful election we've just enjoyed. And I'm not picking on Hillary here, who said that and was famous for this, this phrase during, during this election, deplorable. Because the reality is, this is what politics does. We create parties and systems where we say, we are basically the good people in society, and we're trying to figure out, but that other party over here, they're deplorable, and they're horrible, and they're bad people. We're the good people, they're the bad people. And we are living, in essence, in politics out of self-righteousness. We are the good hats, the white hats, they're the black hats. Our policies are better, our people are better, our thoughts are better. It's how the system works, correct? We can argue later, but... And we kind of build ourselves up in self-righteousness and we, we, in doing so, create categories of other people and individuals and whole groups of people where we consider them deplorable. And the truth is, in this election, in this time period in history, we've seen some things in our society that are pretty deplorable. And no matter what side or perspective you're coming from, we can all point to different issues in society and culture and go, that's deplorable. And what are we supposed to do about that? Well, more on that in just a second. In Luke 7, it's a passage that is the core of our vision of New Valley. Jesus is invited to a dinner party. <laughs> and, and he goes to this party at the, the house of a, of a man who's named Simon, not the, not the apostle or the disciple, Simon is a Pharisee, and he's invited Jesus and his homeboys in for a dinner party. And they're there, but they're being mistreated by Simon, the Pharisee, and the other people that have invited him there, because they're just trying to catch them in a, in a trap. They're not really there inviting them to an actual party. But then this woman from the city comes in to the dinner party. And the self-righteous people there at the party, the Pharisees and the religious leaders, they see her as deplorable. They see her walk in and her sin and her poverty and her prostitution and, and, and just go, ah, and, and, and she falls at Jesus' feet and no one had washed his feet and that was the custom of the day. He walks in with his dirty feet and so do his disciples and nobody does anything about it. But this woman starts to shed such tears and wash his feet with his, her tears and worship him and they said to themselves, if he were really God, he would know that she is deplorable. She's an awful person. She's a sinner right? And then Jesus turns and he tells this story about two debtors, one man who has two different people that owes him a big debt. One is small, one is large. He cancels both. And he says, which, which do you think will love 
love the moneylender more. He says, of course, the one with the greater debt. And the punchline of the passage goes like this. He who is forgiven little, Simon, loves little. And this is the point, you guys. And he, he leaves us hanging to fill in the rest, which is this. He who is forgiven much loves much. And the problem with politics and the problem with self-righteousness, because that is the core of racism, bigotry, and any, any sense in which you feel like you're better than anyone else, at the core of that is self-righteousness. I'm better than you by birth, by race, by whatever, but it's like, it's saying, I find my identity in something else other than God, other than his righteousness. I think I'm better than you for some reason, and I'm dividing myself from you. I'm pulling off from you for whatever reason. That's a form of self-righteousness, and Jesus comes along and says, hey, he who is forgiven little loves little, and he who is forgiven much loves much, and if you are self-righteous, your problem, Jesus would say, is you don't understand my gospel. You see, the Pharisees felt like, oh, we're forgiven, yeah, we've got sin in our life, but it's nothing like those other people. We've got sin, but it's really a small amount of sin if you think about it compared to these other people with their big problems. And yes, of course, we repent and we, we go to church and we do all these things, but ultimately, they're worse people because we have small sin. And so, friends, the only way out of this is for the church of Jesus Christ to actually believe the gospel and live out of the gospel, which is this, you are incredibly sinful and that you've been forgiven an infinite debt. An infinite debt. And out of that, being seeing how much you've been forgiven, you'll love much because when we believe we've been given just a little amount, we have such little love for God and for other people. This is the gospel. The gospel is that my sin is deplorable and I've been forgiven an infinite debt by a holy God. My sin, not yours. I'm not talking about you. I can't. Scott Brown's sin is deplorable. And I have been deplorable. But I thank God that in spite of that reality, Jesus Christ has forgiven me of all of that. And he's not only forgiven me and said, you're, 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 you're you know, wiped free. He's given me the wealth of his righteousness and loving embrace. David Fairchild is a friend of mine and a pastor from Seattle, and on Facebook, he just wrote this kind of random thing, I think really quickly after the election, and I think it's one of the most beautiful things I've read in light of it, and he wrote this. As the church purchased by the precious blood of the Son of God, we are uniquely situated to offer hope Forgiven much. Forgiven much. Loving much. As the church purchased by the precious blood of the Son of God, we are uniquely situated to offer hope, healing, and help during a time of deep confusion and mistrust and division. We fight hate with love, lies with truth, division with reconciliation, injustice with justice, anger with grace, and bitterness with forgiveness. It is the church of Jesus that has at its core the gospel of self-donation. He who was God and was equal to God can, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself, becoming a servant, dying for us, even on a cross, Philippians tells us. 
Self-donation. Jesus came to rescue those who are far off, unlike and distant from himself. He moved heaven and earth to break into the cracked and vandalized sphere to take our hatred, hurt, and treason upon himself. God intentionally gathered and renewed his people through suffering love and has sent us into the world to be ambassadors of grace, people of hope, and children of the promise. Go, be your father's child. Isn't that beautiful? Go, be your father's child, living and loving in ways that commend his son. The church is not an afterthought. It is God's instrument, foretaste, and first fruit of his glorious, never-ending kingdom. There are deplorable sins out there, and they've been demonstrated lately in our society. We are not to overlook deplorable sin. We must fight the deplorable sin that we see in our society. The injustice, racism, bigotry, even the sexual sin that we see in our society. We need to fight this, but all the while doing so with such grace that we love and bless the sinner. We cannot stand for deplorable sin, but we can bless the deplorable sinner and love because such are we without Jesus Christ. Amen? Without Jesus, we are that. And I want to give you three practical suggestions for moving forward today. Today, right now. Pray, listen, and bless. Friends, we're called to pray. The Apostle Peter, the Apostle Paul, they all tell us to pray for those who have authority over us. Paul says to do so that we may live peaceably in our society and that the gospel may go forth. Would you pray for our nation to humble themselves before the Lord, but especially the body of Christ, that we may humble ourselves? The Bible says in the Old Testament that if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, not other people, if my people will humble themselves. Pray for our nation that we, the body of Christ, may humble ourselves before the Lord. This is the way we will overcome self-righteousness, which is the root of all of our society's ills. And please pray for our president-elect to be wise in his decisions and for him to be humbled before a holy God. Pray for him, for wisdom, for humility. Pray. Next, listen. This is not easy. Listen to people who voted differently than you did or who see the world differently than you do, and listen to their concerns and their fears and their convictions. Listen. Don't talk. Ah, oh, it's so hard. I just want to, I, I know stuff, right? I told you that. Like, I, I need to tell you stuff. Listen. One of my friends is doing this to such a degree that I, I literally can't believe he's doing this. He, he is pastors, one of the lar- larger churches in our city. He's an associate pastor, but still. And, and he's got a full-time gig times two. And his response to this, to listen more, is he's going to be an Uber driver in the early mornings and late at night in order to listen. He's not going to talk. He's just going to drive around and say, how are you feeling? What are you thinking? What's going on? He's like, I clearly don't understand a lot of people in our society after this election. I obviously don't get it, so I need to listen better. 
I'm blown away by that. And then he's going to take the extra money, not for himself, like, woohoo, extra money. He's going to use that to bless neighbors that are different from him, specifically like Muslim neighbors and, and immigrants and people who are refugees moving here. He's just going to like shower all that money on those people. I almost don't have categories for that. How, how, how does somebody do that? He who is forgiven much loves much. Pray, listen, and bless. Friends, do not accept deplorable sin, but bless the deplorable sinner because your sin, though deplorable before a holy God, has been extravagantly forgiven in the grace of Jesus Christ. Do not accept deplorable sin in your life or anywhere in society, but bless the deplorable sinner because your sin, though deplorable before a holy God, has been extravagantly forgiven in the grace of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we pray that your people, called by your name, would pray, would listen, would bless, would live in humility, but knowing and understanding that there is no righteousness in and of ourselves, that any good that we may see in our own lives and heart emanates and comes out of your righteousness, which is freely gifted to us through the gift of justification and the gift of your Holy Spirit through sanctification. None of this is ours. And out of this free gift of salvation, after so much forgiveness having come to us, help us to love much, seeing the enormity of our sin, canceled, forgiven, and then the enormity of the gift of your grace and righteousness to us, that we may be people filled with love for others, even those that are different, far away from us. And I pray, Father, that even now, even in, in these days, right now, that we, the body of Christ in America, would begin to not see more and more division, but Father, I pray for more diversity and love, that the church in America may become more diverse, and that we might demonstrate that we are your children in the diverseness of it, Republican, Democrat, white, black, Latino, coming together to worship under the banner of the kingdom of God and our King Jesus Christ, not our divisions. Oh Lord, may we be unified around your precious Son who has died for us all and unified us all in Him and His kingdom. So God, let us in this day, today, live this out. Listening to one another, preferring one another, encouraging one another, as we can call it today. We ask this in Jesus' good name. Amen.